with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Our scripture reading this evening is going to be Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. Before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us go before and ask for his grace. Father God, you tell us that your word is that imperishable seed by which we have been born again. And you tell us that it is the pure spiritual milk by which we will grow up in our salvation. And so we come before you this evening, humbly asking that you would remember your promise, that your word not return to you empty. But by your Spirit, Father, cause your word to bring forth an abundant harvest of the fruits of righteousness to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 7. This is the very word of God. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, and let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The word of the Lord. At the heart of this passage is the question of sacrifice. You, you hear it there in the last sentence. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. But the question that this passage addresses is simply this. What is the proper place of sacrifice in the Christian life? Throughout church history, people have gone wrong answering this question in at least two directions. First, some who, who believe that their sacrifices are necessary in order to reconcile themselves to God. That they believe that their sacrifices are necessary either as an alternative to Jesus' sacrifice or as an addition. There, there are some who don't trust Jesus' sacrifice at all. There are some who, who believe that they must find some other way, either some other religion or either their own efforts, something other than Jesus to reconcile themselves to the God who is there. They, they see their sacrifices as an alternative. Others recognize Jesus as the Savior put forward by the Father and yet still believe that they must add their own sacrifice. 
sacrifices to the work that he has done. And so they see their sacrifices as an addition to what Jesus has offered. But either way, they see their sacrifices as something necessary to secure their own salvation. On the other hand, there are those who see their sacrifices as entirely unnecessary. Jesus has already done everything that is necessary for, for my salvation, they say. And therefore, there is nothing left for me to do. There's no sacrifice that I must offer. So long as I believe that Jesus died for my sins, so long as I trust him for my salvation, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter how I live. For the rest of my life, I'm saved. I'm in. Because I believed in Jesus. Both of these views are common, even in the church. But neither is correct. Because both distort the clear teaching of Scripture. And therefore, both misrepresent the proper place of sacrifice in the Christian life. And it is against both errors that the author is warning the Hebrews in this passage, even as he sets before them a third way. And we've seen in our study of this letter up to this point that the Hebrews to whom this letter is written, those who first received this letter, that they were drifting towards the first camp. They were looking for an alternative to Jesus' sacrifice. Believing in Jesus had brought them much trouble. And they were considering renouncing Jesus and returning to their former life under Judaism, to returning to its sacrifices. Because when they lived under Judaism, their life was peaceful enough. And they were wondering if they ought to return to those sacrifices and the peace that those sacrifices seemed to bring. They were looking for an alternative to Jesus' sacrifice. Now, I doubt there are any of us here tonight or any of us at home watching this service who are seriously considered returning to the Old Testament sacrifices. But you know that all of us have been tempted to look for alternatives to Jesus' sacrifice. All of us have, have looked for alternative ways to, to secure our relationship with God, whether something that we add to Him or something else entirely that we look to for our salvation, for our security. We, we look to Jesus because, we look to some alternative because following Jesus has become too hard or it hasn't seemed to work. We, we have suffered for our faith or we have suffered in our faith. Not directly because we believe, but while we were believing. This pandemic is a, is a perfect example of that. This pandemic hasn't come because we believed in Jesus, but it came upon those who believe in Jesus and has made our lives harder. It has cost some of us our jobs. It has cost some of us our, our savings. It has cost some of us people we love. We have suffered despite our faith in Jesus. And when the sufferings accumulate, when the sufferings build up, when the sufferings become too in terms, all of us begin to question whether Jesus is really the Savior we believed Him to be. I think that all of us have wrestled with that question at some point. I suspect that some of us are even wrestling with it today. 
And because we all wrestle with this question, we all need to hear what the author has to say to the Hebrews in this passage. We all need to hear what he has to say about Jesus being the only true, acceptable sacrifice for sins. But we also need to hear what he has to say about not overcorrecting. The author doesn't want the Hebrews to, to make the mistake of, of seeking an alternative or, or an additional sacrifice to, to Jesus. He, he wants them to look to Jesus alone. But he doesn't want them to overcorrect into the second camp either. And so in this passage, the author calls the Hebrews to renounce the Old Testament sacrificial system and to look alone to the, to the once for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their salvation while at the exact same time charging them to offer their lives to God as pleasing and acceptable sacrifices. So let's see how he works these two together. We will begin with the, the first, the, the, the call to renounce the sacrifices of Judaism. Notice what the author says. He charges them to remember their leaders. And he's going to mention their leaders again as this chapter progresses. He's going to mention them in verse 17, and he's going to mention them again in, in verse 24. And it's clear in those later references that the leaders he's talking about are their present leaders. They are to obey their present leaders, he's going to say. Well, look at that verse next week. They are to greet their present leaders. We'll, we'll see that at the very end of the letter. However, most commentators recognize that the leaders that he mentions here in verse 7 are not their present leaders, but their former leaders, the, the foundational leaders. This is suggested first by the command itself, the command to remember. Now it's possible that he's calling them to remember someone who is still alive, but the, the command seems to suggest that the leaders he's calling them to remember are no longer with them. And this is further suggested by the way the leaders are described. Notice they are not the ones who speak the word of God to them, but those who spoke the word of God. He's, he's referring to the leaders who, who first brought the gospel to this particular community. He's, he's referring to the leaders who established this church. And finally, this idea that he's speaking of the former leaders is, is suggested by the very call itself. Notice what he's seeking for them to remember. He wants them to consider the outcome of their way of life. The word outcome seems to, to refer to the end. It seems to refer to the, the final product. And so if the Hebrews know the outcome of their way of life, it would suggest that their lives are over. It would suggest that, that he is talking about not the present leaders who still lead them, but the former leaders who established the church. But what does it mean to, to look back on these former leaders and to consider the outcome? Of their way of life. What exactly is it that he is wanting them to remember? Again, many commentators assume that, that because he's pointing them to the outcome of their way of life, the outcome of their life must have been martyrdom. That these leaders must have been killed for their faith. That, that death was the outcome that he wants them to remember. And, and they assume that the author, therefore, is charging the Hebrews to remember that their former leaders were able to face death with hope because they knew Christ and they knew the inheritance that was theirs in him. And that is certainly possible. But we don't actually have any evidence that martyrdom had already come to this community. In fact, the author says they have not yet resisted to the point of, of shedding blood. 
So we can't be certain that their leaders were martyred. But at the very least, he is asking them to remember that they had finished the course despite whatever persecution they had faced. They had run with endurance all the way to the end. Whether they suffered martyrdom or whether they suffered some lesser persecution, they considered their suffering not worth comparing with the weight of glory that was being prepared for them. They were not like Esau. They were not willing to trade their spiritual inheritance and the city that is to come for a brief respite from their discomfort in this life. They were not willing to trade their inheritance for a single and it is precisely to such enduring faith, such enduring faith even in the face of persecution, that the author is calling the Hebrews. He, he wants them to imitate the faith of their first leaders because he wants them, like those first leaders, to finish strong, to finish well, to, to run the race all the way to completion. Whatever trials and tribulations they have already faced, and whatever trials and tribulations they will face in the course that is now before them, he wants them to follow it to the end, knowing that it leads to the lasting, unshakable city that is to come. Now, by this point in the letter, we are used to hearing such calls for endurance. The, the author has been beating this drum for quite some time. But I want you to recognize that, that despite our familiarity with the call, that this is really very strange counsel. It, it is especially strange if the martyrs were actually, or if the leaders were actually martyred. Usually, when we point a person to the outcome of someone's life who died doing what they were doing, or who, who suffered greatly because of what they were doing, we are usually pointing people to the outcome of their life so that they will not follow the same path. At some point in your driver's education, you were probably shown pictures of gruesome car crashes, crashes that were the result of drinking and driving. Why did they show you those pictures? They showed you those pictures so that you wouldn't do the same thing, so that you wouldn't imitate that foolishness. Or you've probably seen the billboards plastered all over town of pictures of, of people who have used methamphetamines and abused that drug or abused some other drug. And, and why do they show you those pictures? They show you the outcome of that way of life so that you will not imitate it. So that you will not follow in those footsteps. When the outcome of a person's life is suffering and death, we, we ask a person to consider it so that they will go in a different direction. But the author of Hebrews is doing exactly the opposite. He is asking the Hebrews to remember their former leaders and to remember the outcome of their way of life, an outcome that, that almost certainly included suffering and persecution, and maybe even included death. And he is asking them to consider the outcome of their life so that they will follow the same course. When you consider those terms, you have to ask yourself, what is going on here? What is the logic of the author's call? I want to suggest to you that the author is pointing to the leaders, that the leaders who first brought the gospel to this community, he is pointing to those leaders as examples of people who could confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? 
Remember, that's the boast that he put in our mouth last week when, when he said, remember Jesus, remember that, that Jesus is always with you. Remember that he has promised not to leave or forsake you. And because he is with you, because the one who now reigns as the supreme king, the Lord of lords, because he is with you, you can confidently say, whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? If Jesus is for us, no true harm can come to us. And the leaders understood that. Now they understood that that boast did not mean that they, they would not ever suffer. They, they knew that they would suffer. They knew that, that in this life they would have to endure hardship. In this life they would sometimes have to endure even persecution. They might even be martyred for their faith. But despite all that could happen to them, they knew that harm could not. They knew that they could not be harmed. That was the author's promise, and that's what the author wants the Hebrews to remember. It's the same thing that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, that famous passage where we're told that God is now working all things together for our good. Do you remember how that passage continues? The same Paul who told us that all things will work together for our good goes on to say that we may face persecutions and, and sword and, and famine and, and want and need and, and hardships of all kinds. All of that is included under the umbrella of what we might endure, even as God is working for our good. Peter says the same thing in his second letter. He tells those to whom he is writing, he says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are zealous for the gospel, no harm can come to you. And then in the very next sentence he says, But even if they should make you suffer, even if they should make you suffer. Yes, you might suffer. He says the same thing in his first letter. He says, you might grieve in your present persecutions, but even in the midst of that grief, you will rejoice because you know that you have a living hope that they cannot touch. This is the promise of the gospel. Jesus himself said the same thing. He said, they may kill your body, but they cannot harm you. They cannot touch your soul. Your life is secure in Christ. In Him, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, even as you are being kept for it by the very power of God. What the author wants you to see is that the same Jesus who made that promise is the Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Jesus who does not change. That promise was not just for the former leaders. That promise was not just for the apostles. That promise is for all who call upon his name. And so what the author is calling us to consider, when he calls us to consider the outcome of their faith, is not their death. It is not their suffering. Yes, they suffered. Yes, they, they may have even died for their faith. But the outcome of their way of life was salvation. The outcome of their way of life was entering into God's rest. The outcome of their way of life was, was receiving the inheritance that was theirs in the city to come. The, leader, the leaders finished the race and entered God's rest. And the author wants the Hebrews to do the same. He, he wants them to run with the same endurance so that they might not fail. 
to receive what has been granted to them in Christ, an inheritance in the unshakable city that is to come. Now, obviously, such an argument depends on the certainty of faith in Jesus leading to resting with Jesus in the city to come. And so it is that certainty that the author turns us to in verses 9 through 14. Notice again what he says. He calls upon the Hebrews not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings. The warning reminds me of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul writes to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. False teachers have come to Galatia, and they were, they were teaching a different gospel, a strange and diverse gospel. And they were calling on the Galatians to, to return to the Old Testament, a ceremonial system, system of, of, of days and of, and of rituals and of sacrifices. And they were telling them that these things must be kept if they were to be saved. And Paul pushes against their false gospel as strongly as, as he can, as strongly as he does in any of his letters. He warns them that, that, if, that if the Galatians accept this false teaching, if they, if they submit themselves to the Old Testament laws, to the Old Testament sacrificial system, then they will be severed from Christ. Because you either rest upon Christ alone for your salvation, or you do not rest upon Him at all. That was Paul's message to the Galatians. And so he warns them against strange and diverse teachings. And the author of Hebrews here is really doing exactly the same thing. And we don't know if there were teachers that were coming to these Hebrews with, with the same false teachings. But we know that the Hebrews were being lured and enticed by the memories of their former life under Judaism. It's possible that there were some who were sort of prompting them to return to the synagogue, prompting them to return to the sacrifices. But whether or not there were false teachers in their midst or not, the, the strange and diverse teachings were there in their memory. Because when they had practiced Judaism, they had known peace. Judaism was legal and the empire was a recognized religion. But now they were facing persecution not only from, from those who were outside the church, but they were facing persecutions from their kinsmen, from, from their fellow Jews. It was coming from all sides. And they were beginning to wonder whether or not Jesus was the Savior that they had thought him to be. They were, they were beginning to wonder whether or not it might be better to return to their former life and to their former beliefs. The food that he mentions there at the end of verse 9, that's the food of the Jewish sacrifices. He's reminding the, the Hebrews that, that of what he said earlier in chapters 9 and 10, the Old Testament sacrifices, those, those sacrifices that were still being performed when this letter was written. He said those sacrifices were ineffectual. And they always were ineffectual. Because they were merely a shadow of what was required. They, they pointed to what was necessary. They, they pointed to what needed to happen, but they were not the thing itself. That's why they had to be repeated every year, the author says. The very fact that they were repeated shows that they didn't actually accomplish anything. They did not actually accomplish the cleansing of the, the conscience of the, the worshiper. 
but rather they showed what needed to happen. They showed that a sacrifice needed to be made, but that sacrifice, the substance of, of what was necessary, is found only in Christ. Only Jesus' sacrifice truly cleanses the conscience of the worshiper, because only Jesus' sacrifice is truly sufficient to atone for sin. And therefore, what the author wants the Hebrews to see is that returning to Judaism is returning to a diverse and strange teaching. Now that saying may seem odd to us that he would refer to the Old Testament and to the laws that were given by God himself through the hand of Moses. That, that the author would refer to that as diverse and, and strange teaching. But what he wants them to see is that when you return to the Jewish sacrifices, when you return to the Jewish system as if it were an end in itself, you are turning Judaism into something that it was never meant to be. You are distorting it. And therefore, it is no longer the very word of God, but it is some new, distorted teaching. You see, we sometimes think that Christianity was the new thing. That Christianity was the change. That the Jewish Old Testament system wasn't working and, and God came up with some sort of plan B when he gave us the gospel. But not at all. The Old Testament is fulfilled in the gospel. And when you turn to the Old Testament apart from the gospel, you are turning to something strange and diverse, something that is not the word of God. I sometimes want to say this to my academic peers. They, they, they have this vogue of referring to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Scriptures. Not so. The Old Testament are not the Hebrew Scriptures, unless by that you simply mean that they are the Scriptures written in Hebrew. They are Christian Scriptures. They are the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. And when you make them the Hebrew Scriptures standing by themselves apart from Christ, they are no longer the Word of God. They are diverse and strange teachings. And if you go to them alone, if you go to them by themselves, you cut yourself off from grace. You cannot be saved by the Old Testament by itself, because the Old Testament is but a shadow of what is needed, and the substance is found only in Christ. That's what the author means when he says that we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The altar that he is referring to is the cross, of Christ, the cross upon which Jesus Christ offered himself once and for all time. Those who, who continue to, to serve the tent, that is those who, are, who continue to be devoted to the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, those who continue to look to it for their salvation, they have no part in the sacrifice of Christ. It is either or. It is one or the other. You cannot add the Old Testament sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ, just as you cannot add any other sacrifice. You either trust Jesus Christ alone, or you do not trust him at all. And we today need to hear that. Not because we're tempted to turn to the Old Testament sacrifice. That's not our particular temptation. But we need to have that absolute assurance that Christ's sacrifice of himself is the one and only and forever sacrifice for sins. Because that is your hope this evening. That is where you can stand and endure whatever comes. 
When you stand upon that rock, when you stand upon the rock of what Christ has done, the Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear. What can man do to me? They may cause me to suffer, but they cannot do me harm. Whatever comes, I will be more than a conqueror, because I am in him who has forever conquered death. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the hope that sustains us. That is the hope that strengthens us to, to run with endurance the race that has been set before us. The absolute assurance that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. Those who receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone, they will be sanctified. Those who call upon his name will be saved. Whoever believes in him shall never perish. The one who looks to him as Lord and Savior will never be put to shame. Whatever may come, it cannot do more than kill you. Whatever may come, it cannot harm you. Because you, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is indestructible, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Even as it is being kept, even as you are being kept for it of the very power of God through faith. That is what the author wants the Hebrews to see. There is a once for all perfect sacrifice. And it is the fulfillment of what was offered in the temple. So the temple sacrifices are no longer needed. But does that mean that there is no longer any sacrifice? that we as believers must offer to God? I've left myself much time, but let me give you the short version. No. <laughs> of course there is a, a sacrifice. There is a sacrifice that we must offer, not to, to earn our salvation, but because we have been saved. In the Old Testament, there were sin offerings and there were guilt offerings. There were offerings that, that dealt with our sin and reconciled us to God. There were also other offerings, offerings that, that celebrated and expressed the renewed relationship that we now have. Burnt offerings and peace offerings and fellowship offerings and thank offerings and, and grain offerings. And I want to suggest to you that those are the offerings that are now fulfilled in the Christian life. Notice what he says here. He is, like Paul in Romans 12, calling upon us to offer our lives, our, our bodies, as sacrifices to God. There are two types of sacrifices. Sacrifices of, of words and sacrifices of works. We, we see the sacrifices of words in, in verse 15. Notice what he says. He says that we are to offer to God the praises that are due His name. The, the praises that are, are pleasing to Him. And it's important for us to hear that. It's important for us to see that, especially today. We, we know that the scriptures often speak against sort of empty words or, or worshiping God with our lips while our hearts remain far from worshiping God with our, our lips while our, our works seem to deny Him. Empty words are an abomination in God's sight. They, they are not pleasing. But, but don't 
err in the other direction. Words are still important. It is important that we gather together as God's people to sing the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into light. It is important that we confess Christ as our Lord. You don't all have to be gifted apologists. You don't all have to be gifted evangelists. But we all must confess Christ as the reason for our hope with our mouths. We must confess Christ before men. We must offer to God the praise that he is due with our lips. But such sacrifices of, of the lips are not sufficient. Our words are not enough. They are necessary. But we must add to them our, our works. We must not grow tired of doing good, he says. We must share with those about us. We must see ourselves as blessed in order to be a blessing. We must work for the good of those who God has, has woven into the fabric of our lives. These two are sacrifices pleasing to God. And so we must rest entirely upon Jesus' sacrifice for us so that we can offer our lives as a sacrifice to him, not a sacrifice to earn his blessing, not a sacrifice to, to reconcile ourselves to God but a sacrifice to express the thanks and the praise that we have because we have been saved. That's what this passage is all about. The author wants the Hebrews to remember their leaders so that they might walk in the same footsteps of faith, not just into death, but into the rest that lies beyond this life, into that inheritance which is theirs and the unshakable city he wants them to turn away from all false and strange and diverse teachings and cling to the crucified, risen, and now reigning Savior. Because he knows it is only in him that they will find the strength to actually offer their lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And so like Paul in Romans 12, his charge to you this morning or this evening is simply this. In view of God's mercies, in view of all that he has done for you in Christ, offer to him your life. Offer him your words and your works as a sacrifice of praise, as a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as a whole burnt offering worthy of his name. Because you know that all who rest on Christ will surely receive the inheritance that has been secured for them, bought not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And because that salvation is ours for certain, because it has been secured by the very power of God, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Mm -hmm. Amen. Let's believe it together. Pray with you. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for the perfect sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, by which our sins have been dealt with, by which our guilt has been removed, by which we have been reconciled to you. Father God, teach us to rest in this salvation. Teach us to, to rest in this perfect sacrifice. Not so that we can go off and do our own thing, but so that in view of your mercies, we may offer our lives to you, our words and our works, as a living sacrifice, holy acceptable in your sight. Father God, teach us to run with endurance the race that has been set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.